that it's a great day to gather with God's people and to sing His praises and to come together to worship Him and to direct our attention on the many blessings that He has given to His people. Not just that we might praise Him for those blessings, but that we might look to Him for His future blessings. For the reminder that we are a people that have been called together that we might look forward to heaven. Philippians 4, uh, 13 was a topic of discussion this morning in our Sunday school class. Probably one of the most misquoted or at least miscontextualized passages in all of the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that passage mean? What does that verse mean? Does it mean that I can do anything that I set my mind towards as long as Christ is working in me? Does it mean as long as I am a godly person, as long as I am fearing God in my heart and I am pursuing His virtues, that there's nothing that could ever stop me? The context of that passage reveals that whether I am living in a time of want or in a time of great abundance, Paul writes, I have learned what it means to be content. That means when I look at Philippians 4.13, I'm not reminded just of the power, the divine power that lives inside of us as believers, but more importantly, I am reminded that God is the one who provides for me. That even in times of want, He has provided for me. That I can be content because He has given me something greater to look towards. I say that as we come this morning to the book of Esther. We began looking at the book of Esther last week and um, discussing at some length the difficulty that comes with preaching this book. If you weren't here last week, I'll remind you, the book of Esther makes no mention of God. The book of Esther doesn't reveal particularly godly attributes or traits. The book of Esther tells us the story of God saving His people. God preserving His people. God teaching His people what it means to be content as He provides for them. There is no hero in Esther besides God. The woman, Esther, as we'll learn today, doesn't embody any traits that make us go, wow, I want to be like that. Mordecai doesn't have these traits. King Hazarus doesn't have these traits. There's only one hero in the book of Esther. And you have to be, read between the lines to see him. The only hero in our lives is God. The only thing that we have to look forward to is God. Now, I've mentioned the difficulty with the book of Esther in particular. Let me also share the difficulty that I have in preaching through biblical narrative. These parts of the Bible that tell us stories. Now, these are the the parts of the Bible that we often teach to children. It turns out stories are a great way to teach, and they are. There's a reason why God chose in His sovereignty to include narrative in His holy word for us, for our edification, for our rebuke, for our reproof. There's absolutely a reason why we should look at the narrative of, that is unfolding from the beginning of time as God is establishing a covenant people 
all the way up to the fulfillment of much of these promises in the church, all the way up to the promises that we look ahead to towards heaven. But here's the difficulty. We're not all good Bible teachers. And I'd have to include myself in that statement. We read narratives and it's so easy for us to say, be like this. I call those the deadly bees. Have you ever heard a sermon where you've been attacked by deadly bees? Be like David when he stood up to Goliath. Be like Daniel whenever he decided to pray. Be like, you know, all these different things. Can I tell you, being like somebody else is never going to help you glorify God. Being like somebody is never going to help you to understand what it means to live up to your Christian potential. Being like somebody is never going to help you serve in Christ's kingdom. Do you know why? God didn't make you to be like somebody else. We're going to avoid the deadly bees because I think they kill Christians. They make them chase morality rather than a relationship with God. We're going to avoid the deadly bees because they're unhelpful. Because they do not teach us what it means to worship God. With that said, let's pick up in Esther chapter 2, verse 5. We'll read through the end of the chapter. With your Bibles open in front of you, Let us pray as I prepare to read out loud and you read along with me. Make sure what I'm saying is accurate to the text. Father in heaven, we come to you humbly this morning with hearts ready to worship you, hearts with our attention directed towards you, hearts not focused on commotion, not focused on distraction, not focused even even on ourselves, God. We're focused on you. We're focused on your word and what it means. God, humbly asking that your word would produce in us a response that as we leave here, we would be your people, that it would be evident that we are your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's orders and his edict were proclaimed. And when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. 
for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus's, after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regu regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and mirror, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king's again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had been taken as, her, as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then... The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. A long passage of scripture to unpack, but I think it's important that we see everything that has just happened. We picked up in verse 5 where we left off last week. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, and we're introduced to Mordecai. I read this and my mind goes, so there's this Jew and he's in Susa and he's in the citadel. What's the citadel? And who's this Mordecai guy? It should lend us to be a little bit curious. Who is this Mordecai fellow? Where did he come from? Well, what's this Jew doing in the middle of the Persian Empire? And we read on and we find that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, you guys remember Nebuchadnezzar? Is everyone totally lost with this strange name? Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon when Babylon came and captured Jerusalem, and he took the king of Judah with him. And we've talked about this several times as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah and looking at just the history of the exile in general. We've learned that this was the custom. Whenever you laid siege to a people, how are you going to convince them to follow you? 
Well, relocate them, obviously. That just makes sense. And so this happened. This means that Mordecai, or at least Mordecai's parents, were among those that were brought to the Persian Empire. Now, Babylon was conquered by Persia, so that's the connection if you're keeping up. Was brought to this area in the Persian Empire, probably with Daniel. Remember Daniel? The guy that prayed, the guy that uh, was given to the lion's den. Probably brought to Babylon alongside Daniel. He was with this group. And so here we have a peculiar picture. Something that we really have to grapple with or at least keep in the forefront of our mind as we're reading through the book of Esther. These are people chosen by God, living in a place that does not reflect their election. It doesn't reflect their choosing. That doesn't sound too unfamiliar, does it? I look around this morning and I see many Christians called by God what we say, that have turned their lives over to Christ, made Him Lord, made them their King. Many Christians living in a world that does not belong to Christ. The ruler and the prince of this world, the Bible says, is not Christ, but it is the devil. Well, how are you supposed to live in a world that doesn't belong to your King? Philippians 3.20 reminds the saints in Philippi, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 3 verses 17 through 20. How are we to live in this world? How are we to contend with living in a place that we don't necessarily belong to? Looking at Esther, or Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, and looking at Mordecai gives us insight into this, at least in some respects. We learn that Mordecai was a Jew, and I believe this is a significant statement. The Babylonian captivity probably took place around 597 B.C., and now we're somewhere in the 4th century at the time of coming to the narrative of Esther. What we put together in those pieces is that Mordecai is a second or third generation exile. I don't know if you're keeping up with me, but I think people often look back to their roots whenever they've been misplaced after a few generations. It doesn't always happen in the first generation. It doesn't always happen in the first generation. I think about this. As Americans, one of the things that we often hear whenever people are discussing their heritage is they say, oh, yes, I'm Scottish or I'm I'm French. Oh, yeah, so you were born in France or you were born in Scotland. No, 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 no. I was born in America. How many of us tell stories in this way? 
Why is it that we develop these ideas of our identity that are wrapped up with different nationalities or our heritage or where our grandparents or our great-grandparents came from? It's because we realize that we're connected to something bigger and we want to dig back in those roots and see where it is exactly that we came from. This happens normally after two or three generations. Now, I've never spent a great deal of time in Louisiana, but when I was 18, I found out that I was adopted and that my adoptive family was from Louisiana. And I found a lot of joy in the fact that I enjoyed a lot of Cajun food and decided that that was completely my identity now. And I jumped in head first and I ate jambalaya and gumbo for breakfast and dinner and lunch. And, and when there wasn't enough of that, I ate Tabasco peppers all by itself and developed a tolerance for extreme heat because I thought that was good for me. Now, there's something about wanting to be connected to a people, isn't there? The same is the case for Mordecai. The text says he was a Jew. Most likely had never been born in Jerusalem, never lived in Israel during its heyday, never experienced God's peculiar blessing on a people whenever they were an independent, sovereign nation. But he was a Jew. What's our text telling us? It's telling us that Mordecai was in touch with his roots. He was in touch with being a Jew, and he was focused on identifying himself in that way. I asked this question as we began to uh, come to our introduction. How can I, how can you, be a good citizen of God's kingdom? Philippians 3.20 tells us that's where our citizenship is. How can you be a good citizen of God's kingdom while you reside here on earth? You don't belong to the earth. You're not under the authority of the prince of evil. You do not belong to Satan. You've been redeemed. You simply dwell here. You reside here. In fact, I think a real biblical way that we would look at our habitation is that we are all alien residents, wandering around like nomads, waiting to go home to our home. This place is only a temporary home. Now we say that and it gives us great joy. It allows us to go to a funeral of a lost loved one and to celebrate that they are home. To look forward to the day that we will be reunited at home with them. Anyone that's lost anyone close to them is familiar that our longing is not in this place. Anyone that has experienced grief in losing someone that has celebrated their reunification with Christ knows that as we wander around in this world, we feel as though there is a void inside of us. It just doesn't go away. Whether you're talking about losing parents or siblings or friends or co-workers... You think co-workers wouldn't get you the way that it does. But you know there's a difference when somebody leaves because they've left this world and when somebody leaves because they've left a job. We had a young man pass away whenever I worked at Walmart. It was all that we could do but to memorialize him. 
We had a meeting room that didn't have a particularly significant name. That room became named after him. We had posters that he had drawn for a a conference where we had taken all the technicians in all the United States and we brought them together. And, And we were talking about our business goals and our objectives and changes that were coming. And the guy that passed away drew these beautiful pictures, these kind of cartoonish sketches for the different teams. We couldn't just get rid of them. They were memorials. Why was it so different? When somebody who we worked with left this world, than it is when somebody that we work with simply finds another job. Because we know there's something bigger. There's something bigger than just where we are in proximity. We know that the kingdom of heaven is greater than just the land that we live on. Being in touch with that reminds us that we are a peculiar people that must grapple with this question, how can I be a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven while I reside on earth? Verse 7, we're introduced not just to Mordecai, but now we're going to be introduced to this young woman, Hadassah, that is Esther. Why does she have two names? Hadassah is her Hebrew name. It's a name of tradition. It's a name that's been handed down. But she goes by Esther. That's her Persian name. She goes by Esther. And we learn a bit about Esther as well here. This is the first time we've met her all the way in the second chapter of the book that has given her name as its title. What do we learn about her? Well, we learn that she was an orphan. We learn that she was adopted. And we learn that she was attractive. Verse 7 gives us all of these insights. She was orphaned, for she had neither father nor mother. She was raised by a cousin, Mordecai. We would assume significantly older than her, somewhat like a father in age. Mordecai raised her as if he were her father. And then the verse goes on. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She had a good figure. And she had a pretty face. Sometimes you get one or the other. Esther had it all. Sometimes people get pretty faces and maybe not a nice figure. Sometimes people get a nice figure and a not-so-pretty face. Esther had it all. A nice figure and she was lovely to look at. So, when the king ordered his ed- when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, this is the edict that Queen Vashti because she had disobeyed a request to come uh, potentially done something immoral by coming into his presence with all of the people. King Hazarus or King Xerxes as he was, I think more better known in history, Uh, King Xerxes decided that she would no longer be queen. She was not allowed to come into his presence and that he would take all of the beautiful women in the regions, bring them together, kind of have a beauty contest to find out who would be the new queen. This edict came out 
And the many young women were gathered in Susa in the citadel in the custody of Haggai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So here's the story of Esther beginning to unfold. I know I've been slow-paced so far this morning, but it's about to get really exciting. turns out that when Esther was brought into the custody of Haggai, verse 9 says that the young woman pleased him and won his favor. I don't want to have any misconceived notions. Being good-looking can open doors for people. It did for Esther. That's just a fact of life. It turns out that a salesman that is somewhat attractive, tends to do better in sales. It turns out that being good-looking helps you in this world. It makes people trust you more, actually. I've decided to revolt again against this by growing out my facial hair, and it's true. People trust you less whenever you grow a beard, and it makes life more fun. So I've just upped the difficulty level on the game of life. I've bumped it up from easy mode to hard. It opened doors for Esther. Now here's really where we have to stop to marvel. And this is what I mean by it gets exciting. Doors open for Esther because she had a good figure and a pretty face. Now I look at that and I want to say, well, God, you did not give me a, a good figure. You gave me what I, I refer to as the apple figure. Round. God, you didn't give me a particularly unique face. I think my eyes are too far apart. My nose is too narrow. I can't buy glasses that don't slide down. I'm obviously deformed. My parents should have named me Quasimodo. And that's what we all want to do, isn't it? I mean, honestly, we could find not one person, I think, that doesn't have some critique over how they look or how they present themselves that wouldn't want to change something about themselves. Hey, and if it wasn't that, if you were completely satisfied, if you are an egotistical maniac, because I think you have to be, because I've never met someone that actually is happy with everything about themselves, what you would find is your personality would probably be problematic. Right? Because then you would say, well, I'm too neurotic. Well, I get anxious whenever I speak to people. I cannot help but whenever I have a conversation with someone to leave that conversation and to analyze every word, every reaction, every diagenic and non-diagenic interaction that I had that day. My wife knows all about this. We started a, a new ministry recently. I say new ministry. We're, we're just going through a five-week book study as we as a church, consider how we take care of our missionaries. And so we're reading a book written by a missionary. Thursday, I left. Michelle said she wanted to go to Oklahoma to visit my grandparents. We hopped in the car. That's a two-hour drive for me to analyze every interaction that happened Thursday morning. And my lovely bride endured it for only 30 minutes. She was pretty weak. Normally, she lasts longer than that, but... Well, it was about 30 minutes before she told me to keep it to myself. I asked her how the food was. I thought it was kind of bland. Did you think it was kind of bland? Did you think everyone else thought it was kind of bland? Did you hear any comments? 
I asked her about the questions that were asked and the reactions that we observed. And it's much better for Michelle if she just falls asleep on these trips because then I can process it on my own just like I do at night when I stay up late into the morning and I think about the sermons that I share with my church. Were they clear? Do they communicate God's word effectively? Did I put myself in it? Do I, do I need to look back to God? Is there something that I need to clarify soon? Is there something that maybe I can clarify later? Hey, that's just me. I know I'm the only person in the room that does that. Right? Oh, no. You don't think I'm the only person in the room that does that? You ever had a conversation with somebody whenever they have a cold? They don't tell you that they have a cold. They don't apologize profusely enough for not following all of the social etiquette and protocols that you've been taught the entire duration of your life. And you think... My goodness, that person was rude. Hey, we were talking just the other day about one of our friends. I say friends. They're missionaries. We've only met them once. They came to visit us, and they went away. And Michelle said, oh, yeah, I don't really, I don't really like them. And I went, why? I was like, I don't know. I went to talk to them, and they were just rude. I was like, you realize they had malaria when they came to visit us. They had just gotten home, and they had malaria. Like, I think he was not feeling that great. And Michelle said, well, I didn't know that. First impressions, they matter, don't they? Now, what's all this point? Seems like I'm just talking in circles, talking about all these different circumstances. So what? You're not pretty. So what? You're not uh, charismatic in personality. So what? In all these different directions. Well, I said this morning, God didn't make you so that you could analyze yourself to death. He didn't make you so that you could want to be like someone else. He didn't make you so that you could look at Esther and say, well, if only I had a good figure, I could really get into places. I could really please people. And hey, look at what God did through Esther's life. That's not the point. What we have to look at is God made Esther for the particular purposes that are found in the book of Esther, and that is that God was preserving His people. The book of Esther tells us the story of God preserving His people by His sovereign will. And so we turn to the book of Esther and we read these, what seems like unnecessary or perhaps just sprinkled in detail as if it was an insignificant narrative that we might read and go astray. But what we find is what is recorded in Psalm 139. Now you all know Psalm 139, don't you? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The only conclusion we can take away when we look at Psalm 139 that He knits me together in my mother's womb, that He knew me before I was created. If we have a high view of God's sovereignty, like the book of Esther gives us, like the whole Bible gives us, in fact, and we look at the way that we were created, then we must also confess that God has His hand in creating not just the person, but all of the tiny details that make that person who they are. God has his hand in developing your personality. You say, God doesn't have his hand in developing my personality. I've got baggage I'm carrying around with me. From that one time I was rejected from the fifth grade's ice cream social. The reason I am... Uh, anti-authoritarian and don't have a high respect for authority? Well, it's because I was raised 
by drug addicts. All these things are true in my life. I also have a high disregard for authority. It kept me away from the church for a long time. I was raised in a house where authority was mocked. I really was excluded from the fifth grade ice cream social. It really did break my heart. I totally revolted against that system. Turns out, um, looking back on that, whenever I was in fifth grade, they didn't diagnose dyslexia like they do today, but it turns out when I was in, well into my college career that I found out that I was dyslexic. So it's no wonder I couldn't read 35 books like the rest of my classmates to go to this ice cream party. Did it mean I wasn't smart enough? No, what it meant was I took all the other dumb kids that were out in the hallway sitting out with me and I got them to sign a contract that we would not participate in any classroom games. I was a menace to society. Don't be like me. I'm telling you, avoid the deadly bees. Did God make me that way? Or was it all this baggage and trauma? Who allowed that baggage and trauma to be a part of my story? Who put me in those situations, decided I'd be raised by this family, that I would go through this? Who made me who I am? It was God, wasn't it? God has his hand in creating your personality. God has his hand in creating your identity in deciding that two or three generations down the road that you would be interested in your roots. God has his hand in your physicality. And so the fact that you have one leg that's longer than the other, God decided that. So what you walk with a hobble? God decided you'd have a hobble. We cannot look at the story of Esther without seeing God's hand on every intricate detail. Yes, she had a good figure and was pleasing to look at, and that certainly opened doors up for her. Our takeaway is not that we need to get a good figure and a good appearance and make sure that we have everything that she had so that we could walk into places that God wants us to be in. Our takeaway is that God created you for exactly the story that he has in mind for you. God created you with a purpose that he has predestined ahead of time that you would walk in. God created you just as you are. Just as you are. Well, that seems kind of countercultural. Turns out in 2023, you don't have to be just as you were created, but in fact, men can even dress like ladies and call themselves women. Where do I get off saying this? Where am I going on this tangent? Is this just some opportunity for a preacher to get political? No, watch this. Watch this. If we have such a high view of God, that we embrace Him creating us exactly as we are, with unique purposes for our lives, I want you to consider the alternative. I read Philippians 3, verse 17 through 20 a second ago. I want you to consider those others that Paul is warning against who make their bellies their God. I want you to consider those that are simply trying to live in a world without considering where they belong. The Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God. 
That's not just so we would get to know him, but that is so that we can be his people. He gives us a purpose in Genesis chapter 2 where we find that passage that we are created in the image of God. He tells us that he gives men and women the ability to subdue the land, to take hold of it, to have control over it, because he's entrusted you with something great. He's entrusted you, while this world may not belong to him, while it may lay siege to the powers of the, the Satan, while it might not reflect the Christian virtues that we would like it to reflect. While governments may fail us, while people may fail us, while societies, even Christian societies, will fail us. We have confidence in God. In all of this, we have confidence in God designing us for our unique purposes. And so, what do we do when we, when we reject the way that we've been created? We reject the very essence that God has placed us here for a purpose because we no longer serve a God who has decided that we would be here. Rather, we serve our own bellies that are searching after food, that are searching after nourishing, that is trying to please themselves. Perhaps even the greatest harm that has come to the church at large, all of Christendom, is that people who are called by his name do not walk like it. They would rather fall into the fold. They would rather keep quiet by walking with the majority. Consider that for a moment. As we move past verse 12, as we see Esther getting ready, and my goodness, can I just comment for a second? Twelve months to get ready? Michelle, I've got to apologize to you. I thought you took a while whenever you did your whole face. You got nothing on the, the women of the Persian harem. All the husbands in the room owe their wife, all boyfriends, owe their girlfriends a huge apology whenever we leave this place because they've got nothing. Twelve months to get ready. Pick up in verse 15. This is strange. This is really strange. I just said that Christians should be a peculiar people. I just said that the preponderance of the Bible testifies to the fact that the reason God calls people at all is that we would be peculiar, that we would stand out. The reason God places us in unique situations and gives us unique personalities and physicalities is because He wants us to be unique. Now, if you read about identity and you just start in Genesis and make your way to Revelation, what you find is the overall emphasis is you will be a distinct people. Well, this is really beginning in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham. You will be a distinct people. We read through Leviticus, and I know some of you are real excited about that book. I think some of you just skip over it altogether in Numbers, and then you get to Deuteronomy, and you just say, this is more of the same, and you just make your way straight into you know, looking at the historical books. What is all that business about the way that we would worship? What is, we just made our way through Hebrews and we had to explain a whole lot of this Old Testament nonsense. Why is all that there? Why do you have to wash the vessels seven times? What's this deal with the mitzvah? And what, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. It's very simple. God wanted his people to be unique. 
God wanted his people to be peculiar, to stand out. They wanted him to be a people that in the way that they conducted their lives, in the way that they conducted their business, in the way that they made decisions, in the way that they set their values, whenever it came time to worship God, they would be a people that asked, Is that kosher? If it's not kosher, you know, I'll just wait until dinner. I've got kosher food at home. Are we those people? So we make our way to the New Testament. What we find is that these blessings have been inherited. Something we call, uh, I'll, I'll give you a big word if you're interested in it, antecedent theology. These promises are ours. The church is his chosen people. Peter writes, for you are a royal priesthood. Chosen. Are we peculiar in the same way? Other than the fact that we come to church from time to time, do we stand out against our neighbors that live in the world? Hey, the church loves to complain about what's called nominal Christianity. I like to complain against what's called nominal Christianity. It is the biggest roadblock to genuine evangelism. When you come to somebody and you ask them if they've come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and they say, yeah, when I was seven years old, I absolutely did that. And then I decided the church wasn't for me. Let me ask you a question, a serious question, and you can reflect on it on your own. If you've been conformed to the image of Christ, and you seek His will in your life, and you've made Him King and Lord of your life, you look at His bride and you say, that's just not for me. I want you to tell me again that you've really been called by His name. I think you understood some of what was in the Bible, maybe even understood the gospel but in the most loving way I can say it, I don't think you're a Christian. Who are you to judge? That's normally what they come back with. Who are you to judge to say that I'm not a Christian? Well, I'm one of the elders of Christ's church, called according to His will, affirmed by His bride, and studied in His word. Studied in the history of the church. And loved one, I can't find any example in all of the Bible of a nomadic Christian. Uh, Not nomadic, that's not the right word, but a, a hermit Christian. In church history, sure, we have hermits. They were hermits because of persecution. We say, what a great blessing it is that we can worship God, that we're free to worship God. If we didn't have that freedom, would we stop worshiping Him? No. We would keep worshiping Him. We wouldn't stop worshiping Him because we're called by His name and that's what we're created to do. But as we read in Esther... Is that the example that we find? When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. 
Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that they set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Let me tell you why I call it the killer bees. Because if you be like Esther, you go with the flow. And that's not what the rest of the Bible tells you to do. That's not what the rest of the Bible tells you to do. Don't be like Esther, guys. Maybe you have been like Esther and you think that you've messed up. Maybe you've gone with the flow for the past 15, 20 years. And maybe you are looking at this and you went, oh my, I was being like Esther. The book of Esther still has encouragement for you. Because did human failings stop God from working? Again, no. You are not so big that you have control over the way that God works. You are not so powerful that you have influence over a sovereign king that holds all things in order according to his will. You are not so big that God did not still save and preserve his people. We could ask all sorts of what-if questions. Was it right for Esther to go with the flow and become... Think about this. If you, were, if you know anything about the Jewish people, um, staying pure and genealogy is a very important part of it. Can you imagine Esther's poor, long-lost mom and dad hearing news that she married a Persian king? Hey, as a Christian, if you have children, can you imagine your children going off and marrying a Buddhist? Would you tell me that you would celebrate that? Could you imagine your grandchildren marrying a Muslim? Would you be happy about that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If my daughter came to me years from now and said, Dad, we're ready for premarital counseling, I would simply turn to Scripture and say that you're unequally yoked and you don't have my blessing. Esther went with the flow. She became queen of the Persian Empire. Hey, I'd love to ask, was Esther right? Was Esther wrong? Was Vashti right for disobeying the king or was Vashti in the wrong? All that's really not the main point, is it? We have to be careful not to be like Esther. Because those killer bees kill us when we read biblical narrative. I've come full circle, you see. The difficulty in preaching through this narrative is we don't necessarily find examples of godliness when we read this. What we find is a testimony of a God that is preserving us. Because even though Esther fails, even though Esther doesn't live up to godliness in the way that she should, she becomes queen. And if you've read ahead in Esther, as I've asked you to, I've asked you to read along because it's really difficult to look at this without seeing the broader picture. What's going to happen because she's queen? Because she's queen, she's going to be put in a position to stop the plans of a wicked man who want to execute all of the Jews. Mass genocide. 
because she's put in a position by God's sovereignty. Even though she didn't live according to his will, God was able to work. It goes on even before that. You see this big party and the pomp and parade, and we see that again echoing what happened in, in chapter 1, this great feast, and it's Esther's feast, and there's generosity. But look at verse 19. Esther may have been agreeable. She was accepted by the king. Now look at verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Here's where it gets exciting. There was a plan being developed by these two guards that stood out at the threshold where Esther's uncle or cousin um, or cousin had been going to find out how she was doing. And while he was there, he caught wind of this coup that was being planned. And because Esther was now Queen Esther, he was able to tell her and she was able to tell the king. And because of that, this coup was able to be stopped. Sounds great, right? We preserved what was established. The Persian Empire keeps on going. That's not the main point. Because later on, as our villain in the story would make plans for this great genocide and the gallows would even be built for the Jews to be hung on. Through God's sovereignty, he would also keep the same king awake. He would develop insomnia probably thinking about you know, how the party went, just like me. He was thinking about all his interactions and overthinking and making sure that everyone was still his friend and that he hadn't offended somebody more than necessary. He's laying awake, and so he says, bring me something to read. Check this out. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and this is the important bit, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So as this develops, the king, he's up late at night and he says, bring me something to read. And as he's reading, he reads about this Mordecai. This Mordecai that was in the right place at the right time. He didn't plan it. You think Mordecai was trying to get favor with the king? What purpose would he possibly have in doing that? None. His daughter was already queen. He had all the influence that he needed. What did he need to do? He was checking up on her. His intentions weren't to gain favor. He wasn't trying to find out what a coup was. He wasn't a Persian nationalist. He was interested in his Jewish heritage. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And he heard this story. Do you think he just happened to be in the right place at the right time? No. God put him there because he put the desire in him to check on Esther. Do you think he naturally came by a personality that gave him the ability to share this news with Esther? I mean, if he was a bit more sheepish, you think he would have just kept it to himself. I don't want to get involved in a coup. What if these guys have a bigger posse behind them and they're somewhat successful, you know? I don't want whoever comes to power, I don't want to be enemies with them. I'll just didn't know anything. Let's see what happens. No. 
God gave him a personality that said that he was going to tell his daughter. And so she did. And it was recorded in the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So that days later, weeks later, months later, as the king was reading this, he would be reminded of this Mordecai fellow. And he would ask, how can I reward him? And it's through this reward. Think about all the things that have to come together for this to work. I mean, this is one of those stories where you look at it and you went... The cogs just came together. You all have stories like that in your life, don't you? You can't really explain how it all came together, how I met my wife. We were in the ninth grade, and we just happened to have all the same classes. Not really. But we had the first, first class, and, and you know, it was really a trouble. I was really a bit of a nerd, so I didn't talk much. We were in pre-AP English, Miss Price's English room. The classroom was on the second floor, 300 hall, and it was the first room, so it was room 2031 at Rogers High School. There were a lot of pretty girls in that classroom that had nice figures and pretty faces. It didn't matter because I wasn't going to talk to any of them. Not in the ninth grade. I didn't have confidence in the ninth grade. I barely have it now. Lo and behold, by God's providence, my teacher's computer quit working. I didn't have to say anything. I'm naturally the smartest person in the, any room that I walk into. I fixed my teacher's computer and that made me stand out like a peacock. It was really what it was. It made me stand out in the eyes of my future bride. And she'd remember it. And we walked next to Miss, Miss, uh, Miss Payne's Algebra 1 class. And she had a sign on the door that said, Welcome to the House of Pain." And she meant every word of it. She wasn't a coach or anything like that, but if you, you know, if you said a, there was a word that she didn't really like, and I understand it. She was from a, an older, she was a, of a particular vintage. There was a, a word that had been introduced that everyone kind of used, and if you said it, she made you do push-ups for it. But I really liked Miss Payne because she drew not thinking monsters on your paper whenever you did things that were just silly. But I sat behind Michelle because, you know, I kind of had an interest, not the confidence to actually speak to her, but I'd sit behind her. I'd be in proximity and maybe something would come up. Maybe I could help her with her homework. That was my plan all along. It just so happened one day on the radio, they were playing a song by Secondhand Serenade. Tonight will be the night that I will fall for you. Some of you, you guys know what I'm talking about. In the ninth grade, I tell you what, I had a beautiful soprano voice. I'm telling I could sing higher than anyone else. Most of the women couldn't even sing as high as I could in the ninth grade. And I came in there singing it real airy, you know. It sounded fantastic. Of all the songs I could sing, that was the one. And Michelle turned around like this. Oh, I love that song. Now it seems like just your run of the mill, how people fall in love, right? She had to love that song, which means God had to decide that she would be introduced to it ahead of time and that she would like it. I mentioned I was a nerd, so I didn't listen to contemporary music. The only reason I listened to that song, this is going to break your heart, was there was another girl that I liked that listened to that song. And she was giving me a ride to school that morning, and it was on the radio. That's the way God worked it out. The reason I knew how to, the problem with that computer actually wasn't because I was all that good at computers. I recently had the same problem, and another nerd showed me the problem and explained it. And so I knew exactly how to explain what the issue was. 
God had to work all these things together at the same time. All right, looking back, does that other girl matter? No. Looking back to, to all these insignificant little details, they're humongous because they're what brought into the world now the wonderful marriage that I share with my wife. They're what brought into the world my wonderful children that I get to raise and that I get to teach. As we look at the story of Esther, even though she didn't necessarily do what was right, when we look at this, God worked it all out in the intricate details. And so what is our confidence as Christians? What do we leave here as application? Well, first of all, let me summarize application because I'm afraid I'm going over on time, and I apologize for that. But our application is actually very cut and dry. First of all, quit comparing yourself to everyone else. Remember that? God made you the way that you are. Embrace who you are. Now, if there's parts of your life, parts of your personality that you need to repent of, obviously repent of that. I'm not saying that God has justified the sin in your life. If you're an anxious person, you need to turn that over to God. If, if, if you need help with those things, the Bible has answers for all of these things. But God made you the way that you are. He made you stand as tall as you are. He made you have as many hairs on your head as you have. I might like to contend with God that maybe I had a few more hairs on my head, but that's not my business. It's His. I think he is making me go bald so that I would look wiser since he also gave me this baby face that demands that I grow this beard, which means people don't trust me and I don't have a respect for authority and so I'm going to continue to grow the beard out. You see, it's all very complicated. It's not complicated to God, is it? No, not one bit. Second, maybe you've fallen away. Maybe you've decided that you want to walk with the majority because it's safer. You make more friends walking in the majority. In fact, I think Christians oftentimes think that they identify, you know, with one particular point. And we see this, especially, I don't mean to ruffle any feathers, but I'm also not afraid to ruffle feathers. Hey, we see this, especially in politics. Most Christians are Republicans. And there's a reason for that, because we value life. And then the Republican Party has on its platform, one of the primary issues is that we value life. And so we vote in that direction. Hey, listen, not every political candidate that has an R next to their name is a sincere, genuine Christian or even believes that life is all that important. But they, rather they know that they can work people up because they would agree with it. And here's the problem when Christians identify with one thing and they decide to go along with everything else. I'll tell you where I stand. I had a, you know, during election season, people call you and the first question they ask you is, sir, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And I said, I'm a Christian. And he said, no, sir, you didn't understand the question. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? And I said, well, again, I'm a Christian. I vote according to what the Bible says. Not just parts of it, not just little bits of it. I don't choose lesser evils. I vote according to that. Because I'm not accountable to anyone but a sovereign God. I'm a Christian. That's what I am. The guy hung up the phone if you're interested. He wasn't interested in my opinions after that. Most people aren't. Now, that's the truth no matter where you're at in this world. As soon as people find out that you're a Christian, 
and they find out that what you're telling them is based on what the Bible has to say that will rule you out and count you out faster than anything else. All of a sudden, even if there's good principles for living life, hey, people can come to biblical counseling. The presupposition of biblical counseling is that we're going to do what the Bible says. It's the guiding force. And so when I've had the opportunity to counsel people, particularly people who aren't Christians, and there's some benefit. There's some benefit to finding out what the Bible says about handling your money. There's some benefit. It'll save you. It'll help your family. You'll benefit from it. But it won't last without God. And the same is true. We want to put everything in terms of principles that it's agreeable for everyone. The Bible's not agreeable for everyone. It's just not. Why do we walk with a majority? When we should be ready to be the minority. If all the freedoms, if all the liberties, if they're all taken away, would he be like Daniel and continue to pray? Hey, there's a killer bee. Did he catch it? Would he be like the Bible says you're supposed to be a peculiar people called according to his name? More loyal to his kingship than anything else. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it's guided us. God, I thank you for the way that you work in our lives. God, I'm sorry that there's parts of my life that do not reflect your glory. God, I'm sorry that there's parts of my life that I've gone with the flow that I didn't even know what I was doing, but God, looking back and looking through the testimony that's found in the Bible, I'm reminded that you work through failures, you work through insecurities, you work through all of these things because you're the one that's working in this world. You're the one that's working through your church. You're the one that is working through your people. Father, I pray that you'd be with this church. They've heard a long sermon. I've gone over on time again. These people are anything like me. They stopped listening 30 minutes in, so I pray that you'd help them to repent. I pray that you would help them to hear the meaning of the message, to see that it does not come from man, but that it comes from you, and help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to sing boldly as we stand to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.